We are again in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. We have been in this series on prayer and uh, have been looking at the Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 9. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 811 if you're looking in that Bible. Again, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew chapter nine, starting in, or in chapter six, starting in verse nine, he says this: "Pray then like this: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This summer we've been speaking on the topic of prayer, and we're going to continue that. This is the last Sunday in the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look a bit at the epilogue there that Jesus gives us at the close of that prayer. And... uh, This coming week, this following Sunday, Pastor Dan will be in this pulpit. Um, I'm going to make my way to see my newly born grandson, who was born a week ago Friday, Caleb, and pick up my wife and bring her back. I'm anxious to get her home and be here, so as well as see my grandson. So he'll be speaking next week on the subject of prayer. And then we're going to, the following week, going into the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John Chapter 17 is where we will go. So that's the plan for the summer. Last week, as we were talking about prayer, we talked about two fundamental things as I began and we came to the Lord's table of why it's important for us, I think, this summer to do this. One is that we believe, I believe with all of my heart, that the giver gets the glory. Uh, and, And we want God to be the giver, the giver of all the grace we need to do whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever that is, for His glory. That's the kind of giving I think God gives us. All of the grace we need to live for His glory as believers. And so we want to live in such a way that we ask often for that grace, that it would come and strengthen us and help us to live and reflect His glory. The second thing that I talked about last week and the reason undergirding all of this is that that I believe with all of my heart that God uses means to accomplish his purpose. In other words, in Romans chapter 10, it says, how will they hear if no one tells them? And the emphasis is go tell them about Christ. The means is the proclamation of the message, the proclamation of the gospel. I believe that as well with prayer, that God... God uses prayer to accomplish His purposes. But I think we start with His purposes. God's purposes stand. We don't change God's purposes. From the beginning, He has purposed a purpose. And He is fulfilling that purpose. And so, then the question would be, why pray? If God has already decided the purpose and is about accomplishing that purpose, what's prayer about? I think in God's economy and in, in, in ways that we cannot fully fathom, God has chosen to use meet prayer as a means of accomplishing those purposes. And so he stirs his people to pray according to what his purposes are. And I said that is incredibly hope-giving to me 
it, it should spur us to pray. As God begins to lay something on our heart to pray for, we should not take that lightly. Now, we can miss it, and our own sinfulness can get involved in that, our own desires can get involved in that, and all kinds of stuff mess it up because we're fallen. But that doesn't mean we don't do it. To the best of our ability, we, we pray. and We pray as much as we can. Lord, help me to pray according to your will and according to your purposes. And even when we don't get all of the words right, the Scripture says in places the Holy Spirit helps us to pray and utters words even beyond our words. That is incredibly hope-giving to me. And it fundamentally hits, hits here for me. In, in the scriptures it says, nothing is too hard for God. And we use that scripture for lots of stuff. And it's true. I just think we use it wrongly often. We use it for our own ends sometimes. But I think fundamentally what that is saying is nothing is too hard for God, including the human heart. It is not too hard for God to break through to. The heart that has turned to its own devices, its own ways to sin, is not too hard for God to turn. We pray often in our body that God would open the eyes of those around us. Open our eyes more fully, but open the eyes of our community to see the glory of Christ. I hope when we do that, we understand how incredibly important it is to pray that. It, is, it should be hope-giving to us when God begins to lay specific people to ask God to do that for. Because ultimately, ultimately it is only Him who can take a stony heart and cause it to be a heart of flesh. Some people think, oh, that, that makes me not want to pray, thinking only God can do it as if we think we can somehow do it. We can somehow tweak things just correct enough that somebody's eyes will get opened. That is foolishness. We don't understand how hard our own hearts were. Except God opened our eyes. You do not see today. You may think you had part in it, (laughs) but the farther you back up into that, you realize God is the one who took a heart and He changed it. He caused it to see. It is incredibly hope-giving to me when God begins to lay somebody on my heart because I'm talking to the one and the only one who can really do it. And I don't fool myself thinking otherwise. God uses means to accomplish His purpose. If God is laying somebody on your heart to pray for, pray, pray, pray. God uses that as a means. So, with all of that, that's where we get dependency. When you start to see that, that's what we mean. Prayer, living a life of dependency. We are way more dependent than any of us know on Him and His grace. Now, this morning, I want to look at the epilogue. I want to look at some words that come at the end of the Lord's Prayer, verse 14 in particular, where Jesus comes back to something He's already talked about. 
Pastor Jason spoke on it a couple of weeks ago when he said in verse 12, or he preached on this text, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Why in the world now, you should ask the question, does Jesus come back and reemphasize that part of the prayer? Because he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I hope you've been around me long enough and, and my ministry long enough that when that kind of thing happens, you ask questions. There's some questions that just naturally bubble up from that dual nature of his speaking there. That he said it once and he comes back and reemphasizes it. So you should ask the question, I think, um, the absoluteness of the, of the statement itself should, should cause you to ask questions. It says there, if, if, if you're going to be forgiven, you must forgive. I mean, that's a pretty absolute statement. It says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I mean, that should just cause us to set up if nothing else. And twice. The second thing is, um, it should cause us, if we understand the gospel, have any understanding of the gospel at all, to say, how does that work? Does that mean it's meritorious? In other words, if as I forgive somebody's sin, then I, I accumulate merit, so my own sin is forgiven? What does that do to the merit of Christ? What does that do to the finished work of Christ? Does that mean I add to it? In other words, that's what I mean. Does, does our forgiving other people's sin give us points toward God forgiving us? You should ask that. You should say, how does that fit with the gospel? What does Jesus mean? I mean, he, he meant it enough to say it twice. He, he didn't do it by accident. So again, you ask that question of the text. And then thirdly, it seems that it would cause us to ask the question, is, is there a sin which we no longer commit if we're Christians? And, and to be a Christian, you don't commit it. And that sin, per se, would be unforgiveness. That a Christian never, never is unforgiving. Because, I ask that because of the way verse 12 is written, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, in that question, and forgive us our debts, is one of our debts unforgiveness? You see what I mean? Is it, is it not in that list of debts or sins? Do we not confess the sin of unforgiveness so that we can be forgiven? You see what I mean by that? Is it not in the list of sins to confess at times because we don't do it anymore? Well, I think... I think not to that, and we'll come back to that later. Um, two weeks ago, Pastor Jason spoke on this same subject, took a, a bit different angle with it as I listened to what he shared than where I'm going today, but, but basically was talking ab about it, about forgiving others. He was talking about the forgiveness we receive. He spent most time on that and that it leads to the other. I, I want to take it a bit farther today because Jesus reemphasizes that I think it bears us to do that, to talk about it again. But one of the things that, that we need to be careful about when, when we're talking about um, confession of sin, I, I, think, I think clearly the Lord's Prayer, clearly what Jesus is teaching is Christians should confess sin. 
It's not just unbelievers who say, forgive us our sin. It is believers. You're not talking to unbelievers here. It's unbelievers. And so there's a place for confession of sin. A prime place for confession of sin in believers' lives. Um, now, we have to be careful. There's a tension. That confession of sin can, can get you in trouble if you don't see it and see it in tension. This is not a, a sense in which we're saying that all I can do is sin as a Christian. There, uh, Christians are, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They, they are redeemed. Yes, there's, there's something different, something dynamic in a believer's life as they come to faith. But they still confess sin. It's, it's not a kind of thing that says, well, that's just all I can do, and, and a kind of nonchalance about sin. It, we shouldn't take sin lightly because we're called to confess it. It's about knowing our hearts. It's about knowing our hearts and, and asking often the question, what's going on in my heart? Now, one of the reasons sometimes I think Christians have gotten in trouble with this text and, and have not confessed sin as they should is because they take too narrow a definition of sin. And if you narrow that definition of sin down, then you would have less sin to confess, probably, because you make the, the, the definition smaller so you can meet the conditions of the definition. In other words, you, you just shrink, you shrink the requirements so you do it less, sinless. I have trouble with that. I, I have trouble with being, getting that definition too narrow. So, so I've chosen, and you've heard me say this, and Pastor Jason, I think, said it even when he spoke. My definition is a scriptural definition of sin, and this is the definition from 1 Corinthians 10.31. You already heard me quote it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. My definition of sin is, if you don't do it for his glory, you sin. Jesus said, he commanded, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it for his glory. Now, it just seems that that's the definition because there's other places in Romans where it says, all have sinned and what? Finish it. All have sinned and fallen short of what? Glory of God. The definition of sin is to fall short of the glory of God. And so you find a... A condition that says whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, it would seem to me then the definition of sin is whenever I do not do it for his glory, I sin because that's what falling short of his glory is. It's sin. So, you can define it how you want to define it. I'm going to define it as broadly as I can, as scripturally as I can, and I take that text to do it. And so I think we should do it. And by that I mean we, as believers, need to confess our sin. And one of the things that is so encouraging to me, I just walked out of my Sunday school class, a full room of people studying the scriptures. One of the things I said to them, one of the things that is the most heartening to me about ministry here at Richland is that more and more we are asking the question, what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my heart? Starting to see the, the subtleness of sin, the intricacies of sin, how our hearts will take even good things and make idols out of them, pervert them, 
We need to know our hearts. The more we know our hearts, the healthier we come as a body of believers, that we really look at our hearts. Christianity is about the heart. It's about the heart. It's about God changing that heart and continuing to change that heart. Now, so with all of that said, let's, let's look at the text here specifically. If forgiving others is, first of all, not meritorious, I, I don't believe it is. I do not believe it's meritorious in the sense that, that as we forgive others, we, we gain points to be forgiven. And if you get enough points, you get forgiven. I, I, I don't believe that. That's a perversion of the gospel. There's other places, multitudes of texts all over Scripture that that would not fit. It would not fit. One of the ways you interpret the, the, a passage of Scripture like this is in the light of other passages. You, you take the obscure passage that seems to say something different than the majority says and you interpret that more obscure passage in the light of the broader context of what's being taught. And so as I do that, I, I say, this is not teaching meritorious work. In other words, this is not some sin different than any other sin. And if we can overcome it, we get forgiven. No, it's not what it's saying. It's not a sin that stands alone. So then what is Jesus saying? Before I tell you three things that I have been helpful to me in understanding this text, let me say this. We must listen to this. Don't, don't run over this. Don't run over the fact that Jesus does it twice here, shares it twice. Because of this, it, to, to not be forgiven is no light matter. Whenever Jesus says, if you don't do something, you won't be forgiven, that word forgiven should just be like a neon light to you. Christianity is about forgiveness. Christianity is about knowing that your sin will not be held against you. At the core, at the core that's what the gospel is about. We sang this morning, the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ. You want to know that. The most important thing that you can know in your Christian life is that there has been satisfaction paid in God's eyes for your sin. That it's forgiven. It will not be held against you. And so whenever the scripture says you won't be forgiven for some reason, you better find out what it means. Because that is the core of what Christianity is about. So let me, let me emphasize that a little farther before we move on to those three things. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. I think Pastor Jason again referenced this text two weeks ago. But let me take you back there. Here's a text. And the context of this text is, um, is Peter. It seemed like it was always Peter who was asking the questions. But Peter's asking the question... Just previous to, to verse 34, or excuse me, verse uh, 23, where a parable is told, in verse 21, Peter said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how long, how many times, Lord, do I have to put up with this? And he was looking for a number. And, and the Lord comes back to him really and says, there's no, Peter said seven times. It's the perfect number in Scripture, seven times. Jesus said 70 times seven. In other words, there's no limit. There's no limit. And then he turns and tells this parable. 
He tells this parable of a man who owed a king a bunch of money, a whole bunch of money, a whole boatload of money, $10 million probably or more he owed. And he couldn't pay it. And the king extended mercy to him. And so this same man then went out and got a debtor to him by the neck and started to wring his neck and had him cast into prison for the pittance that he owed him. And the king found out. And the king came back to the man who owed 10 million or so. And he said, And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I mean, right again, Jesus says almost the same thing that he says in Matthew twice here. And if you go a little farther or or back in the Gospels to, to Mark, a little farther on, Matthew, Mark, chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, it says this. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I mean, again, again, Jesus comes back to this same theme and hammers it again. Well, I hope you see the issue. I hope you're looking for something to grab onto in this let me share some things that I grabbed onto this week from others that are helpful in this text. Number one, no one who cherishes a grudge against someone dare approach God in search of mercy. Now, that's where we have to begin. That's what, that's what it's teaching. No one who cherishes, cherishes a grudge against someone dare approach God in search of mercy. It's exactly what that parable teaches. And folks, we need mercy. In fact, every time you kneel to pray or stand to pray or walk to pray or wherever you pray, I hope you start with a realization of the mercy of God, the very fact you can even come into His presence and why you can come in because of Christ and the mercy that is in Him and the finished work He accomplished. But you see, you can't do that as you hold a grudge because you're coming to one and asking him to be merciful to you who who in one sense doesn't believe in mercy. Let me go on. He's, uh, another statement. If, if we think it good to harbor resentments, if we think it good to harbor resentments, we cannot ask God to do what we think is bad. We think it's good. We think it's good to harbor resentments. We like to harbor resentments sometimes. So then we go to God and we ask God to do what we think is bad, which is not to harbor resentments. Isn't that, you see that? That's what we're doing. That's what it looks like as God looks down upon us. We think it's a bad thing to not harbor resentments. And so we come to God and ask Him not to harbor. Well... You see the contradiction? Thirdly, forgiveness flows from a heart satisfied with the mercy of God. 
and rejoicing in the cancellation of the $10 million debt. It's getting better, isn't it? Forgiveness flows from a heart satisfied with the mercy of God and rejoicing in the cancellation of a debt we never could have paid. You see, that's that's what this text is about. To experience mercy calls for mercy. To really understand mercy means mercy begins in our lives. Perfectly? Well, maybe not. One of the things it talked about in that statement is a heart satisfied, and satisfaction is a growing thing, isn't it? But as our satisfaction grows more and more in the mercy of God, as our satisfaction rests more and more in God, in all that He is for us in Christ, the result of that is to let go, to let go of resentments and bitternesses that we hold as we see what God has done. You must, folks, see the size of your debt if you're going to release others from their debt. And the way you see it is you keep looking to Christ. You keep looking to the Gospel. You keep looking and realizing how hard your heart is and was and how God took a heart of stone and opened the eyes to see the glory of Christ. Cause us to trust Christ. Trust Him and His finished work. We must fight to keep our heart satisfied in that. We must fight to have our hearts rest in that and that alone. And the degree to which we fight and and succeed in that battle of resting, mercy will flow out of us. Mercy will flow out of us. Now, it's not always perfect. And I don't believe what I said at the beginning. Remember when I said in, in the in that text in the middle of the Lord's Prayer where it says, and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors, that one of the lists in that would exclude unforgiveness, that one of our debts, that this would mean that one of our debts could not be an unforgiving spirit because you shouldn't have an unforgiving spirit if you're a forgiven person. I don't know if that's all registering, connecting, but, but I don't believe that. I believe one of the things we confess, one of the things we confess even as God forgives us is at times an unforgiving, unmerciful, grudge-keeping spirit. In big ways and in small ways. Here's a prayer someone wrote. Listen, Father, forgive me for my failure today to forgive Tom. I was irritated and wrapped up in myself, and when he said what he said, I flew off the handle at him and held a grudge all day, storing in my mind how I might show him up and keeping count all the times he wronged me. So I went to him and I apologized. I, I do not desire to hold a grudge any longer. You have rid me of my selfish indignation, and so I pray you will forgive my failure to forgive Tom today and let me not fall into temptation again. Forgive us our sin even as we forgive others. 
We're not talking perfection. We're not talking that it's not a place we don't wrestle and battle. But the battle is fought in finding satisfaction in Christ. And as you find it there, you will find mercy flowing out. Mercy flowing out. Thomas Watson was an old Puritan. Many of you have read some of his things. In fact, I would encourage you to read the Puritans this morning. Brian Sharp gave me a book of Puritan prayers that I'm anxious to read. Puritans said it well, and they've gotten a bad name. Modern-day textbooks want to lambast the Puritans, and if that's all you ever read about the Puritans, you don't know the Puritans. But one of the things he said, what does forgiveness look like? In other words, he was answering the question, when do we forgive? What does it look like? What does forgiveness look like? Let me read his definition of what forgiveness looks like. When we strive against all excuse me, when, when we strive against all selfish revenge, when we will not do our enemy mischief but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and shall ourselves in all occasions seek to relieve them. When we strive against all selfish revenge, when we will not do our enemy mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and shall ourselves in all occasions seek to relieve them. It's a good definition. It's a biblical definition. Let me show you why. Passages of screen that I want to come up. I'm gonna, I want to walk through this point by point of what he just prayed, and a scripture will come up each time. The first one is, it resists revenge. Romans 12:19. We got those? Yeah. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Number two, not return evil for evil. 1 Thessalonians, I think. There we go. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Number three, Luke 6:28. Wish them well. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Proverbs 24:17. Grieve at their calamities. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Number five, pray for their welfare. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Number six, seek reconciliation as far as it depends on you. Romans 12:18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then finally, Exodus 23, 4, come to their aid. If you meet your enemy's ox, now note, it's your enemy's ox, or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. That's a good definition. When we strive against all selfish revenge, when we will not do our enemy mischief, but wish them well. 
Grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and shall ourselves in all occasions seek to relieve them. Now, let me tell you a couple of things. It's not. This doesn't come from Thomas Watson, but this is not what forgiveness is. Always. It's not always the absence of anger. It's not always the absence of anger. We can be angry sometimes at the sin. We can be angry at the brokenness. Um, One man, one woman tells a story as I was reading. She told the story of a husband who had been incredibly abusive to her in some very out-of-bounds ways. And uh, whenever she would come to the Lord's table, she, she wouldn't take it because she felt this anger rising up in her soul. Well, you have to dissect that a bit. If there's a vindictiveness, anger, but I think you can go with the definition of Thomas Watson and still have anger, anger at the brokenness, anger at, at, the, at the results of that. There, there can be anger. So it's not, it's not the absence of emotion necessarily. Now that emotion can be good or evil sometimes, but not always. In other words, the freedom she felt when she realized she could come to the Lord's table, even as that anger about the circumstance would arise in her soul, was freeing for her. So I'm not saying to you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have anger sometimes at, at wrong that's been done, wrong that's been perpetrated, but be careful what you do with that anger. Does that anger cause you to, to want revenge? Then you've crossed a line. Does it cause you to want to return evil for evil? Then it's crossed a line. Does it keep you from wishing them well? Then it's not the right kind of anger. Does it, does it cause you to be glad about their calamities? Then it's, it's, um, it's not good. Keep you from praying for their welfare? Does it stop you from any kind of reconciliation as far as it depends on you? Does it keep you from coming to their aid in other places when that abuse is not occurring? You see, anger is not always wrong. So it's not just the absence of anger. And secondly, it doesn't always take away the consequence. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there aren't consequences that people pay. Sometimes they pay legal consequences. And, and rightfully so. They pay a legal consequence for that wrong because it was wrong. And the state deems it's wrong. And so they pay a consequence for that. And you're not wrong because that consequence happens. But you see the difference of the definition of Watson? God help us. God help us to be people who so are satisfied with the mercy of God that we extend mercy to others. That we extend mercy to others. I remember the story of Cory Tenboom. I probably told this before, but Cory Tenboom was was in the concentration camps in World War II. Many of you saw her story, who are of my generation. You younger ones don't probably even know the name. But Corey um, 
in the book The Hiding Place uh, uh, recounts what happened and the, the horrible conditions. They're horrible. There's nothing, there's nothing of any kind of righteousness in what happened there. Her, she saw her sister basically just wither away and die. Her sister Betsy, who she was very close to in those concentration camps. And by the grace of God, Corey survived and was a believer. And, and, and God raised her up to speak to multitudes of people about Christ and about His forgiveness and about His mercy and His grace and His long-suffering. And one day she was on a platform much like I am and people began to respond and people were crowding around her to, to, to talk to her. And, and as she reached out her hand to the next person, she looked into the face of one of the guards who had been instrumental in the death of her sister. And her arm stopped for a moment. And in that moment she thought, nothing that you have said will have any validity except you shake this man's hand, except you embrace this man who was responding to the invitation to come to Christ. That's right. Don't talk about mercy. Don't talk about mercy if it's not a reality. If you're not finding your satisfaction in it, it will not ring true. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who are satisfied with the mercy and they see that mercy. Part of the problem is we don't understand how merciful God has been to us. We kind of think there was something in us that caused Him to be merciful. There wasn't, folks. We committed cosmic treason. It was be just as Corey on the platform and God extending his hand to us. There was nothing there except our vileness. Nothing there except what Corey saw when she saw that man in an instant. She saw the vileness. She saw what he had done to her sister and what he had caused. And that's exactly how God sees us. And yet there's no hesitation in God. There's no hesitation in his embrace to those who come to him. All you weary and are heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest without hesitation. I will give you mercy. God, help us to be merciful people. God, help us to be merciful people. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this morning as we have each Sunday of this series. O great God of highest heaven, occupy this lowly heart. Help me to live a life dependent on your grace and on your mercy to extend mercy to others. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning, but all of us, all of us have things in our lives where we've been wronged. God, help us. God, help us. God, forgive us even, even as we forgive. Let's sing. Oh, great God of highest heaven, 
Occupy my lowly heart Own it all And reign supreme Conquer every rebel power Let no voice or sin remain That resists your holy war You have loved and purchase me, make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no wish to hear your voice, did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your Son, gave me endless hope and peace. Perfection, no. Lack of struggle, no. But if we are in the purest sense, in whatever circumstance you're dealing with, unmerciful. We dig our heels in, in that unmerciful stance, and decide we will not budge. That's an oxymoron. You can't put unmerciful and Christian together. That's what Jesus is teaching. There's room for growth. There's room for God's grace to come to us and cause us to confess. But there's no room for intransigence. Let's pray. Father, help us. 
for the sake of the validity and reality of the gospel, just as Corey understood right there in that moment. Help us to be merciful. Help it to be a banner that hangs over us and this body. For the sake of the glory of your name. And all the people said, Amen.